that story might elicit some thoughts in your mind about the word fair. Might elicit some thoughts in your mind about the word fair. Have you ever considered the use of the word fair? I would guess that immediately after I said this word to you, fair, a sentence ran through your mind. That's not fair. It's when we hear all the time from little children around our knees. It's a great time for us to consider this word and and our use of it. First, because it shows up in our text today, but also because it seems increasingly in our culture and our world for that matter, that fair is expected to have an objective, unbiased, 100% agreeable moral standard of cultural righteousness backing it up. And yet we know that in its average everyday use, that it is entirely subjective and completely humanistic. The dictionary has multiple entries for fair. The noun is the carnival where you go to get elephant ears and ride on the Ferris wheel. Then you have the adjectival uses, and there are many. This person is fair-skinned. This person has fair eyes. And the weather outside is not so fair. But then this entry shows up as well. Fair is that which is free from favoritism or self-interest or bias or deception. That which is conforming with established standards or rules. Now, I don't know about you, but as I read that definition, I laugh and chuckle in my, in my mind. Because I am hearing, as I'm hearing these words used these days, particularly fair, it seems to be loaded with favoritism, self-interest, bias, and deception. Everything which the definition says that it is not. I'm hard-pressed to find a word more hypocritical than the word fair. For instance, you can hear the word fair used at a sporting contest. You know, you, you hear these, these sentences. That wasn't a fair call, ref. You hear it on the playground. It's only fair for my daughter to have a next turn, young man. You hear it in politics. It's not fair that the Senate should set their own rules. And you hear fair in your homes. Mom, dad ate four cookies. That's not fair. <laughs> you know, there is a solution to end the self-interest and favoritism laden in your use of the word fair. Use Bible words. In any of these instances, you can remove the bias and self-interest if you appeal to a higher authority than yourself. Use Bible words. If you place into your sentences words that conform to the character of God, you will do this. You could easily swap out any one of these three words. Right, just, or equal. But it is more than a matter of preference in your sentences. Often the use of the word fair as an adjective speaks volumes about the heart. That's not fair. What does it really mean? It means you got more than me. It means I've been wronged. It means I deserve better. You say that's not fair in order to be rewarded or compensated just like the other guy. The bigger question is, do you really want the just reward for your actions? That's the bigger question. Because on spiritual terms, you'd say, no way. Because if I get what's just for my actions, I'll go to hell. And you're exactly right. But on human terms, we say, yes, absolutely. I want what I've earned. I want what I've deserved. I I want what I've worked for. We all want rewards. We expect even merit-based rewards, don't we? We expect compensation for performance. And truly, it is the only way to have a healthy and growing society. We call it capitalism. Notice it's not called ferritism. It's called capitalism. You like to pay more for goods and services and for better quality products. You do it all the time. You hate it when mediocrity and sloth are made equal to hard work. Think about it. Do you pay more? Would you pay more to have a custom hand-stitched leather wallet? about watches, shoes, houses, cars, your food that you're going to eat for lunch. You'll pay more for good service. We reward and applaud makers of goods and services that serve us well. You know, this is not fair, though. This is just, isn't it? American capitalism has been the envy of the world for 200 years, not because it operates on the principle of fairness, but because it operates on the principle of justice for all. This is entirely a biblical concept. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. 
and the laborer is worthy of his wages. 1 Timothy 5.18. And it is for this reason that our text this morning will be a challenge for us. Because humanly, we want just compensation for our efforts. But eternal life is perfectly equal. We want salvation to work from God to us in the same way that we work from man to man, from person to person. We want salvation to work on terms of merit. We believe this to be the most fair. And do you realize how many religions have a salvation that is merit-based? Just consider the volumes of people and money that flow into Roman Catholicism, Mormonism, Judaism, and Islam every week. All merit-based systems of religions and their bank accounts prove just how much people are willing to pay for salvation. They believe you can pay God and that you can pay him for salvation and that God is fair in this arrangement for paid salvation. They like their fair system of religion and how it defends their fair God. How self-interested and biased is that? Can you buy salvation? The rich young ruler found the opposite is true. He needed to give away all of his money. Give it away. Can you work hard and earn a special seat at the marriage supper of the Lamb? Absolutely not. Do your efforts for Christ merit an extra special salvation? Are you holding out hope? What reward do you get for your extra service? You know, maybe you're one who cleans the toilets or vacuums the floor or teaches in the elementary to our kids once a month. And praise God for those who do that. But do you think for one second that you get more from God for that? You know, that's what I love about our servants around here, and there are so many. They show up to serve us and do these things because of the love of Christ that lives inside of them. That is an awesome reason to do work. These are the questions that our text will look at this morning. Does God owe you more than another Christian? And we will be shown that God is not fair. In fact, he's better than fair. He is always right, just, and generous. And that the salvation that we want is entirely unfair. It's based not in our works, but based solely on grace. Heaven forbid that you ever want or pursue a merit-based salvation. Turn in your Bibles again to Matthew 19. Return in your Bibles there to Matthew 19. Matthew wrote his gospel to tell us that Jesus is king. And in chapters 18 through 23, he picks up a massive discussion that we could call the king's administration. How the king rules his kingdom. You get conversations in this chapters 18 through 23 that range from church discipline to divorce, from children to salvation. And it's this salvation conversation, it's this context in which we have our discussion this morning. And it's in this context where we find Peter asking a question, very important one, about rewards. He wants to know, what do we get for following you, Jesus? What do we get? Clearly, we see Peter has capitalism coursing through his blood. And as a former business owner, this makes total and perfect sense to me. I get it. He wants to know about the reward because unlike the rich young ruler, Peter had given up everything and been following Jesus. And maybe this question is out of fear or maybe out of pride. And in typical Peter fashion, he just blurts the question out for Jesus to address. And Jesus must address it. So let's read Peter's question and Jesus' answer together now from chapter 19, verse 27 to 30. Verse 27 to 30. Matthew records, Then Peter said to him, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. What then will there be for us? And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, that you who have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne... You also shall sit upon 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my namesake will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. What do we see in the text? We see Peter acting according to the character that he's known so well for. Quick to speak and prideful. 
What else do we see? We see Jesus acting like the shepherd that he is. His response is compassionate. It's filled with hope and full of certainty. As he declares to Peter that every one of these who give up and leave mother and father will inherit eternal life. This is followed by Jesus' little proverb in verse 30. In this response, we see Jesus offer the first of three essential understandings of eternal rewards. That's what I want you to see in the text this morning. Three essential understandings of eternal rewards. They're essential because you have to know them. They're understandings because it's knowledge that comes out of these verses into our minds that strengthen us and give us certainty. And we must hold on to them because the text demands that we delight in God's salvation. The text demands that we delight in God's salvation as he gives it. So number one, the first essential of eternal rewards is the certainty of eternal rewards. Number one, the certainty of eternal rewards. God wants us to delight in the certainty of eternal life. Where do we see this certainty in the text? Well, Jesus' response begins with a familiar and solemn formula. This formula, truly I say to you, which was his way of expressing great importance, and we see it all through the Gospels. And the great importance is that you get a reward. Count on it, he says to Peter. There's something coming for you, a treasure. I have it for you. It is with certainty that Jesus launches the conversation and takes us to the regeneration. That word, don't pass over it in the text, regeneration. The Greek word here is the compound word of palingenesia. And literally this word reads, the again beginning. It has a meaning of renewal or rebirth. And here it speaks of the new heavens and the new earth. Even the new heavens and new earth that we understand from Revelation 21 verse 1. When John said, then I saw a new heaven and new earth for the first heaven and the first earth passed away. Jesus speaks of the again beginning, the regeneration, and he speaks with great certainty. And what happens in the regeneration? If you know something about it, Jesus, tell us what happens. What can the disciples count on? Here's what they can count on in a word. Glory. They can count on glory, the eternal presence of God being seated with the Father and the Son forever. This is what you can count on. Here's what it looks like. The son of man will take his seat on his glorious throne. And then you guys, the 12, how cool is this? Each of you will have a throne for yourselves. And from their thrones, they will perform the task of judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Judging simply means here governing or ruling over. And the disciples will preside over national Israel in the regeneration. Well, that sounds fantastic. If you're Peter, you are just thrilled and ecstatic about this answer. New heavens, new earth, being there on thrones with Christ. But Jesus wasn't done. And these next two words, and everyone, must have killed the glory for Peter just a little bit. What do you mean, and everyone? I, I was like, you just talking about us 12. That's, that's great. Leave it there. No, and everyone. What certainty about eternal rewards does Jesus then add in verse 29? He says, and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my namesake will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. What just happened here? A group called everyone will be right there with Peter and the 12 and they will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. Well, the many times as much is a little squishy. We don't know exactly what that means, but eternal life is like a, 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 an exclamation point. It's like a lightning rod. The text doesn't say, is this collectively we will have as much? That they'll get the same stuff or individually? Does, that, does it have to do with the ruling over the nations or does it have to do with the thrones? What is the many times as much? Is it just that more people are going to be pulled in? We could speculate on that, but Jesus' conclusion just blew right past many times as much. And the lightning rod came down. Jesus concluded with certainty that the second group called everyone will inherit eternal life and be found 
in the regeneration with the 12. Heaven, paradise, perfection with the Father and the Son. This is the greatest certainty that you need to have in life. The reason why you come here is to get a vision for where you're going. What Christ has prepared for you. You know, Berean Bible Church, over the last couple of weeks, we've dealt with the death and near-death scenarios very much. And it is so hopeful and helpful when you know if you're going to paradise, to the presence of Christ, certainty of being in Jesus' presence at the regeneration, certainty of inheriting eternal life, that's what's in the text. It's right there. It's for you. Are you a follower of his? Consider the comfort and assurance for Peter and the 12 as they receive this word from Jesus. He is telling them, these men, with certainty about their eternal life and their presence with him in the regeneration. Boy, that should give you some boldness and confidence to live the rest of your life. His desire was to comfort Peter. And did you see how Jesus qualified then? He qualified entrance into eternal life. In verse 28, you who have followed me is paralleled with verse 29. Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mother or children or farms for my namesake. The gospel of Jesus Christ is an exclusive gospel. Follow him. To the extent that even family relationships and possessions are left for him. What has following Christ cost you? You know, false teachers would get to this point in the message and start to tell you all about their losses that they've put up for the Savior. And then they'd grab the plates and pass them around and get you to pay some more for your entrance into salvation because it doesn't quite look like mine. I'm just here holding you accountable to God's word. Do you have the certainty that the scriptures have? about eternal life? Do you hold that certainty in your heart? Are you confident that you will be in the presence of King Jesus when you die? Do you follow him? Or have you continually found more joy in the relationships and the possessions of this world over following Jesus? John 14, 15 says, if you love me, you keep my commandments. You know, the road to certainty in Christianity is paved with obedience and love of God's revealed truth. Which do you find in your heart and in yourself today? The heart of Peter, wondering what the benefits were for following Jesus? Or the heart of David, who said in Psalm 26, Examine me, O Lord, and try me. Test my mind and my heart. For your loving kindness is before my eyes. And I have walked in your truth. Jesus was certain about eternal rewards, even eternal life for his followers. And where Jesus comforted Peter with the certainty of eternal rewards, he also then corrected Peter for his cry for compensation. When did Jesus correct Peter? Well, he corrected him first when he made that parallel between the 12 and the everyone who will leave father and mother to follow him. But then he did it second in this little proverb, verse 30. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. This is a correction to Peter, and it's followed by a parable. This brings us to our second essential understanding of eternal rewards. And the second essential understanding for you to hold on to is the equality of eternal rewards. The equality of eternal rewards. Why are you striving for more? If you want to labor and serve the church, if you want to evangelize the lost, do it for the love of Christ. These things cannot be done for more and greater heavenly reward. The heavenly reward is equal. We're going to see that in a second. Where do we see equality of eternal rewards? Well, first we see it in the proverb. Jesus pronounced, but many who are first will be last and the last first. Jesus makes the same declaration and others like it throughout his ministry. In Matthew 23, 12, Jesus said, whoever exalts himself shall be humbled and whoever humbles himself shall be, exhaust, shall be exalted. There is a leveling effect which takes place like a rushing river emptying itself into a crystal clear flat lake. And that is clearly the lesson here with regard to eternal reward. In the context, this proverb about equality gives rise to this parable that follows. 
And even in the summary of the parable, verse 16, we see the same proverb show up again. They're like bookends on the front and back end of this parable. But what is the meaning of the proverb? Put simply, everyone gets the same. Everyone ends up with the same. Eternal life. Is that all satisfying? Is that enough? Equality is at the issue when it comes to eternal rewards. There is not an option for a greater reward, a bigger reward. I want more. Capitalism may reign among men, but it has no place in the kingdom of God. This would hurt Peter's heart because Peter has expectations. And so do the others. They're the ones that have been laboring around with Jesus for all this time, doing all the hard work. Don't they get better? Don't they get more? Look at the events of Matthew 20, verse 20, just four verses later. And what you see there is the mother of John and James asks her sons, asks Jesus that her sons get to sit in the place of prominence when Jesus comes into his kingdom. Now, shame on those brothers for asking their mom to do that for them. But this is who they are. This is who they are. You, you even see this in Luke twenty two twenty four. The evening of Jesus' betrayal, the very night of glory, when he's talking with the disciples, they get into an argument in which one of them was asking who would be regarded as the greatest in the kingdom. It, it was a result of this that Jesus had to wash their feet and show them that if you want to be great in the kingdom of God, learn to be the servant of all, high-low, low-high, leveling. Equality. This is part of our human condition, is it not? This is all of us. We're always, all of us, seeking reward, seeking benefit, seeking prize. You were doing it this week. You were doing it this morning. I know my temptation was to take one of those donuts, and I should have just left it for the kids. (laughs) We want more for ourselves. We want to be part of something special on our terms. The rich young ruler wanted special, a special path into salvation that he could meet, that he could do. He wasn't given one. And Peter here wants a special prize inside salvation. And he is being told, you have been given the very best. I have given you the best and I have given it to others also. And so Jesus tells the parable then of the wages, the parable of the wages, giving a picture of equality of eternal reward in the kingdom of heaven. Let's look to read the parable of the wages together now from Matthew 20, verses 1 through 16. This parable can be called the parable of the laborers, the parable of the landowner. I like the parable of the wages. It is only recorded here in Matthew, and it serves as an incredible witness to the equality of eternal reward. The equality of eternal reward is what we'll see. Let's read this text. Verse 1. Chapter 20, for the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. And when he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius for the day, he sent them into his vineyard. And he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to those, he said, you also go into the vineyard and whatever is right, I will give you. And so they went again. He went out about the sixth and the ninth hour and did the same thing and About the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing around. And he said to them, why have you been standing here idle all day long? And they said to him, because no one hired us. And he said to them, you go into the vineyard also. When the evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages. Beginning with the last group to the first, when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each one received a denarius. When those hired first came... They thought that they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And when they received it, they grumbled at the landowner saying, these last men have worked only one hour and you have made them equal to us who have bore the burden and the scorching heat of the day. But he answered and said to one of them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go. But I wish to give to this last man the same as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? Or is your eye envious 
because I am generous. So the last shall be first and the first last. Well, let's look to dive into this parable because we need to answer a few questions and define a few terms to get at its simple meaning. Jesus says this is the parable of the kingdom of heaven. It's a parable of the kingdom of heaven. What does kingdom of heaven mean? It simply means that the sphere or the realm of God, the place in which God works and operates. And so this parable then is a window into how God's kingdom works. Where does this parable take place? In a vineyard. Who are the people in the parable? First, we meet the landowner who represents God. He has a metaphorical vineyard, a place workers are desired to labor and to harvest fruit. For the landowner. And this landowner goes out himself to find and hire laborers. He goes out himself. And when he goes out, he leaves early. And he goes out often. His first hiring happens at 6 a.m. He had to be there before the men showed up. The start of the Jewish workday is at 6 a.m. And he is out at various times looking for other laborers throughout the course of the parable. The parable clearly presents the landowner then as a generous man because God is generous and his generosity is shown in the wages that he pays and in his continued pursuit of these men to pull them in more hired help, more laborers. The landowner is unconcerned with the number of hours served by the laborers. His only two concerns are getting laborers into his vineyard and getting them all paid the same. Next, we meet the day laborers. We meet these workers. These laborers represent all of God's chosen. They represent all of us, the elect, the people of God, the people of his kingdom. The first laborers met the landowner before 6 a.m. and they agreed with him to a wage. These are the 12-hour laborers. Hold on to that, 12-hour laborers. Some God chooses to save at an early age. And we know that others God saves way late in life. And so the landowner is found hiring Nine, six, three, and one-hour workers as well. All of the laborers had nowhere to go. There was no surfing to do in the morning. There was no other line of work. The party had ended. Their friends had left them. Whatever the case was, they were there and didn't have anything else to do, and they were looking for work, looking to figure out what to do with their lives. These laborers... The first laborer met the landowner at six. They agreed to a wage. All of the laborers had nowhere to go. Each was waiting for work until the landowner found them. And when the landowner found them, he made them an offer. And they all came. They all came when they were given their offer, especially those men who were not hired at 6 a.m. They had already wasted several hours in the day. They didn't even bother negotiating a wage. They implicitly trusted the landowner To honor his word, and his word was, I will pay that which is right. Did he say fair? Okay, just (laughs) Last, we meet the landowner's foreman who pays out the wages at the end of the day. The foreman represents Jesus, the giver of eternal life. What was the pay? What wage did the 12-hour laborer agree on? The agreed upon wage was the denarius. The denarius, what are we looking at here? The denarius is a day's wage for a full 12-hour workday. And the pay scale, though, is based off of Roman military service. Roman military service is respectable work, and then it just correspondingly needs respectable pay. So that's what you're looking at in a denarius, respectable pay. It's honorable pay. It's something that's truly out of range for unskilled labor. Make sense? So the agreed-upon rate for the 12-hour vineyard workers was a great deal for them. The majority of the workers were hired later in the day. And you can't imagine, can't you, the joy of being hired at 6 a.m.? Suppose you have a family with four kids. Suppose you need to make sure that there's bread on the table by the end of the day. Do you want to be sitting around for three or four hours? Five hours, half the day? No, it's a real blessing to be pulled into work at 6 a.m. You certainly then get to feed your family. You're not sitting around wasting time waiting for work. We've seen this. We know that there are people in our society today that do this so often. How many brothers stand at Home Depot and wait for work to show up? Have you done that lately? It's a joy to have the burden of not knowing where the funds will come from to support your life lifted off of you at 6 a.m. in the morning. These other workers didn't have the burden lifted off, but thankfully they were hired. And their hope for compensation was in the promise from verse 4 where the landowner said that he will pay them what is right. 
These laborers place their trust in the landowner for doing what is right. Hold on to that. There's more of a conversation there. This parable covers also a period of time. The period of time is one day. And you may ask, well, what does that represent in the parable? The one day in the parable is a picture of a lifetime. The picture of a lifetime. Your lifetime. Their lifetime. And in verse 8, we are told that evening came. That's the end of time. That's the end of the life. That's the end of the lifetime. And what do we see the landowner do at the end of the day? He pays the workers their wages. This is a good landowner. A man who's righteous and just. This man knows God and he would certainly know Levitical law. Like Leviticus 19, 13, which says, You shall not oppress your neighbor nor rob him. The wages of a hired man are not to remain with you all night until morning. And so what do we see the landowner do next? He says, it's payroll time, guys. Line up. It's time to get that money into your hands. Come on, line up one at a time here. One at a time. Come on up to the front. Stay seated. That's fine. Look at, look at then verse 8. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to the foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages. And then he adds this. Funny little thing on the back end. Beginning with the last group to the first. Hmm. The landowner is going to meet his obligation. He calls the foreman in who will make it happen. But look at these instructions. This is not normal, is it? Typically, you and I are thinking first in, first out. But the the way he puts this here is last in, first out. This doesn't work in food service. Here's the key to unlock the parable, though. Here's the key to unlock it. Pay them from the last to the first, the landowner says. It matches the proverb. From the last to the first, it matches the proverb of verse 16 and verse 30 and establishes generosity and equality. He goes on to say, pay them all a denarius. Look at verse 9. When those hired about the 11th hour came, each one received a denarius. There's an ellipsis in the text that clearly indicates that these other servants the nine and the six and the three, that they all got a denarius as well. You know, it's not social experimentation that's on the mind of the landowner. He's not trying to create a candid camera moment and catch an ugly picture on someone's face. He's not trying to do that. Equality is in the heart of the landowner. To everyone who has served him, but more than serving him, the landowner has equality in his mind when he went even out to go hire these men. Equality to hire when he went to hire them. After all, why did he need to go out in that last hour or in the last three hours or even at the half-day marker? Why did he need to hire those men? Why did he need to hire workers at all? I mean, the way this is presented, it sounds like he's got such a massive estate that it probably had servants. And if he's got servants, why doesn't he have enough to pick his own vineyard? You could easily ask the question of this text, did the landowner need any of them? That's a good question. Nevertheless, the landowner sought the help of the laborers, and he kept going out and finding them and finding them and pulling them late. The end of the day has come, and he delights to pay them. And what do they all get? Equal pay. What does the denarius represent? Well, if the day represents a lifetime, the denarius represents the gift of eternal life. Can you see this in your mind? These men are standing in line receiving eternal life. That's what the picture of the parable is trying to paint. What a picture. You know, regardless of how long you have served the owner of the vineyard, your wage is equal to all of the other brothers and sisters going on in. This should cause mass rejoicing. This should cause everyone to be thrilled and excited that everybody's getting the same. What an incredible blessing. But they don't. This is the point of the parable. Eternal life is given equally to all who serve God. God is not a respecter of persons or circumstances, though he knows your circumstances and has compassion and gives you strength to endure. He's not a respecter of persons or circumstances. And I really want you to think about this in light of the challenges that you face today or you faced in the past. Are you dealing with the loss of your job or facing impeachment? Are you contending, you, with sickness, ailment, a broken body, the coronavirus? How many of your children are hospitalized today? How many more years of cancer 
do you need to fight? These are circumstances, brothers and sisters. They're circumstances. They're especially designed by God for you to grow you in the knowledge of Him. Do you want to breathe that in again? They're especially designed by God to grow you in the knowledge of Him. Do you grumble in them? Or do you rejoice? That when you die, when you pass through the veil of life, that you will behold the face of God and be in His presence for all of eternity. 2 Corinthians 4.17 says, For a momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things that are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal. They're bound by time. The things that you see today, they're bound by time. But the things which are not seen are eternal. James 1.2 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You know, it is essential for you to understand God's equality in giving eternal life. This reward of eternal life, it is so much a blessing of God, and it comes to us regardless of our circumstances. In fact, in many instances, it comes in spite of our circumstances. You know, you need to breathe in that air that God's eternal life that he gives as a free gift is the reward. And it comes in spite of circumstances. Breathe that in and be thankful for that because that's the greatest hope that you need in this life. The parable takes a turn that it heads to a conflict, one that we know well. And it is here we see the third essential understanding of eternal rewards. The third essential understanding of eternal rewards is this, the ownership of eternal rewards. We want to see the owner. What does he have to say about eternal rewards? Let's look at this one. The ownership of eternal rewards. Ownership of eternal rewards is this. The fact that God owns and gives eternal life as a free gift to whomever he wishes. There's a real desire in our humanistic understanding that man's free will is the center of all of creation. It is not. God has a free will too. And God's free will is the one that is most paramount and it's being exercised. The parable does have a candid camera moment, if you will. And you can picture it in your mind, the look on the faces of the 12 laborers when the one-hour laborers get their denarius. And all of a sudden, this parable of the kingdom of heaven is thrown into conflict. But this is the whole reason why Jesus told the parable, because he knew about the conflict, that it was in the hearts of the disciples, and Peter was the one who chose to voice it. They wanted to know about reward, about performance-based compensation, because they were delivering for Jesus. These 12-hour laborers are directly paralleled then to Peter and the disciples. Direct parallel. And you see what happens next in the text, verse 10. When those hired first came, they thought that they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. And when they received it, they grumbled at the landowner saying, These last men have worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden and the scorching heat of the day. Nasty, that complaining and grumbling heart. So my brother Rod would say, nasty, that grumbling and complaining heart. <laughs> Makes me think of a dinner guest who would come over and complain about the size of their portion. Most dinner guests are just thankful that they've been served. You know, consider the heart that would say this. It's a heart that doesn't like the landowner's system. A heart that says, I want more. I deserve I'm being mistreated. It's the heart that says, that's not fair. So wicked is this heart that it makes allegations up against God. This heart charges God with high crimes and wicked intentions. This is truly the height of pride and arrogance. This is a fist raised firmly and fully at the face of God. Does that ever help you, by the way? Your anger does this. Your circumstances often make you do this. You raise a fist to God as if that's going to change your circumstances. Do you realize that anger with anyone 
in, in this congregation, anyone angry with anybody in society, do you realize who you're ultimately angry with? God. You've raised your fist to God. There will be a consequence for that. His ways are higher than yours. His thoughts are better than yours. Nasty, this complaining and grumbling heart. And we all have it. You know, the, the pattern for personal failure is found right here. You might take this down in your notes, the pattern for personal failure. You know, it starts with a heart loaded with bad theology. It's a pattern for personal failure. It starts with a heart loaded with bad theology. It moves from bad theology to good thoughts about self. On top of good thoughts about self and bad theology, you add bad expectations of others. And Boy, that's a nasty cocktail. What do you get when you add those three things? They result in disappointment, anger, resentment, and bitterness. This is always the pattern of personal failure. You want failure, just stay in that cycle. The glorious thing here is that the landowner does not leave these charges unchallenged. He defends his right to reward as he wishes. Why? Because God alone owns eternal rewards. And we see the owner of eternal rewards defend his ownership against someone who's demanding fairness. There's no mistake in the wages. No explanation needs to be given. God is the owner of all things. Psalm 115 verse 3 says, Our God is in the heavens, and he does whatever he pleases. Romans 11.34 says, For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become his counselor? That's rhetorical. Nobody. So it is a great joy then for us to see the landowner's response. And he sets the record straight. And further, he goes further and he challenges the laborers to consider their own bitterness and their own envy. He says in verse 13, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go, but I wish to give to this last man the same as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? Or is your eye envious because I am generous? Now, what promise did the landowner make to all of the laborers who came late? What was the promise they were holding on to? That word I told you to not let go of? He'll pay them what is right. This is not fair. This is what is right. You know, the Greek word there is dikaios. And that word we talked about a few weeks back, that means righteous. It means righteousness. It means what is right. Does it surprise you at all to see the landowner's defense is made with the same word? Where does the same word happen? The translation says no wrong. You see that in your page? The translation is, says no wrong right there. This is the Greek word adikaios. And all the grammarians in the room know that the alpha privative expresses negation. What did you just say, Oliver? Let me explain it to you. Literally, the sentence reads in the Greek, friend, not unrighteousness to you. That's important. He based his character on what is right to begin the parable and as it was unfolding. And at the rebuttal, he says, not unrighteousness to you. By the way, I told you that fair shows up in the text only at this point. And only if you're reading an NIV, you'll see the word unfair in that translation. He goes further to say, you agreed to this great wage. You remember, don't you? Take what I've given you and be satisfied. You get eternal life. And before you go, know this, know my wishes. Know that I want to be generous and I wish to give the same to all. And then this stingingly obvious question about the legality of equality. The legality of equality. This question, is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? I just see this guy being set up like a punching bag. His representative is Peter. So Peter's just taking the brunt of this. You know, Jesus throwing left and rights with these questions. And he's not done with them either. Because there's a shot that has to go to the heart. And that's what he says last. And finally, the landowner goes directly to the heart issue of the laborer. And he says, or is your eye envious because I am generous? You know, when we read that, 
every one of us should stop dead in our tracks because all of our eyes are envious. We're jealous. We're greedy. We all want more than we deserve. We like to have generosity flowing in our direction. But as soon as it goes to another, we get envious. And our envy turns into resentment and anger. And then it turns into bitterness. The text should assault us on this level. Because we're all just like Peter and these 12 laborers. Because our hearts operate just like Peter and the 12 workers, we get so caught up in this world and the thinking of this world and the cares of the flesh, the fleeting vanity of our minds. And we think so highly of all that we've done. I've done so much. I'm worth so much to you, Jesus. Are you? We lose sight. The parable is a parable of the kingdom of heaven. What do you lose sight of when you're so bitter? What do you lose sight of when you're so jealous? What do you lose sight of when you're so angry? You lose sight of the kingdom of heaven. We lose sight of Christ on his glorious throne. We lose sight of the elders sitting there together on their thrones and everyone who has left father or mother or brother or sister or farms or children seated on their thrones and all of us praising and worshiping and glorifying God together. We lose sight. We need our minds to be taken to the kingdom of God, to the kingdom of heaven. We need the reminders that eternal rewards are certain as well as they are equal And the reminder that God is ruling the kingdom of heaven perfectly, sovereignly, and graciously calling laborers to serve him as he desires on his schedule. And finally, what did the landowner say about himself? What did Jesus reveal in this parable about the character of God? Well, number one, he revealed this about the character of God. God wishes to treat each one equal. And the second thing, God declares I am generous. He wishes everything to be equal, and he is generous. Do you believe that? Do you know that? Do you, do you read your Bible, look at the text, and pull these truths out and stick them in your heart? Do they stick inside of you like a, a warm bowl of oatmeal in the morning? Do you hold on to that? Does it, does it give you nourishment all day long? Oh, it must, because there's too many things in this world that will pull your mind right off of the kingdom of God and pull you into your circumstances and cause you to think about earthly, human-bound, temporal things when your mind really needs to be set on eternal things. He is generous. Who among us knows the generosity of God? Do we join David who declares... In Psalm 13, 5, but I have trusted in your loving kindness. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Has he dealt bountifully with you? The generosity of the Lord is abounding all around us. Do we take the time to see it? You know, you get hunkered down into making a message to preach to the brothers and sisters on, in the morning so that you can have your eyes focused. I was so thankful for yesterday just getting a chance to go with my family for a walk on the beach. You take the time to see God's glory. In snuggling up for a movie. In loving, in, in, in a lovingly cooked homemade meal. Do you see God's generosity? Do you see His generosity in health and the recovery of health of your children? Do you see the generosity and love of God in 18 years of marriage to a beautiful woman? Do you see his generosity in the depth of relationships we know? The depth of relationships we know in this church. Do you see his generosity? You don't have to have this. This is not owed to you. You did not earn this fellowship. It is something that his generosity gives to you. He wants you to have this. 
The the circumstantial trials of this life do their best to shield his goodness from our eyes. And yet, neither the hard labor of the day, the 12-hour service under the heat of the sun, the physical afflictions of our bodies, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love and goodness of our God. The challenge of this message is understanding that God is not fair. You need to breathe that in. He is not fair. And funny enough, That is the greatest joy of the message as well because he loves equality and he loves generosity. With all the things on earth, do not seek what is fair, but do seek what is right and what is just. Do that with your fellow brothers and sisters. Continue to seek what is right and just. Put those two words in your sentences. And when it comes to eternal rewards, Rejoice in these essentials, that heaven is a certainty. Jesus made that so abundantly clear. Eternal life is perfectly equal to all who follow Jesus. And God is the generous owner and giver of eternal life. And before I leave you, I would just say this about eternal life. If you don't know eternal life, it is only found through the person and work of Jesus Christ. He came to this earth, the God-man humbled himself and walked on this earth 2,000 years ago. He was incarnated in flesh and lived a perfect life. And he died a sinner's death on the cross to pay for the sins of those who believe in his name, those who would follow him. If you don't know the simplicity of that message, I plead with you to come talk to me or one of the other elders or any brother and sister that you're sitting next to today. Don't leave here without knowing Jesus Christ crucified to pay for the sins of those who would believe. This is our eternal reward. It was purchased in his blood, and we will celebrate it regardless of our circumstances. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we delight in knowing you, in knowing your salvation, in knowing the certainty of heaven that sets before us. We thank you, Lord. We thank you as brothers and sisters in Christ for graduating our brother Wayne just the other week. And Lord, we thank you for saving others to live longer, to know this message. Lord, we treasure the salvation that you've given. Lord, would you be so gracious as to give as a gift your salvation to everyone who's here? Please open eyes. Please open ears to hear. This gift of salvation, it's a free gift that you offer. Lord, would you allow hard hearts to be broken and crushed and convicted by these messages to the extent that you would call many more into your kingdom so that they can have an equal wage, an equal eternity with all of us who are saved. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.